Hey guys, it's Michael here. Just wanted to check in and let you guys know what's going on. So the upcoming episode is on Spike Lee's new joint, Defy Bloods, which I spoke with actor, film critic, journalist Mac Bates about. And it was a great conversation. I was having some issues with my microphone, and occasionally my microphone would come out rather static when I was trying to record his audio. And I got rid of most of it, but there is still a little bit of it so if you hear some static or even hear a couple weird cuts it's because i had to stop the recording a couple times and fix it up um my hope is that if you listen to this and be like i don't hear anything that i did my job well but i wanted to let you know it's not normally the uh the level that i like to put out so if you hear static if you hear uh sudden changes in volume that's on me uh mac was not using a a microphone he was using just his onboard mics and i cleaned up the audio pretty well and it's not too bad but um in case we were doing it over skype so if things don't if it, it kind of sounds disembodied like we're not in the same room it's because we aren't but um yeah i just wanted to reach out let you guys know and uh thanks for listening hey nick yes do you like <laughs> horror movies Oh, you know I do. Do you like weird, extreme, taboo, and cult horror movies? Of course. Okay. They're my favorite kind. Well, I've got some news for you. Because MVD Entertainment Group and the popular Rue Morgue magazine have teamed up to launch the Midnight Movie Society. What? Yeah. They are a curated subscription video on demand service specializing in extreme underground, taboo, and cult horror movies. Now... Genre fans can gain access to a film library of shocking underground, outrageous gore, creature features, cult classics, and much more. Those with a taste for the weirdest and wildest reaches of genre cinema will not be disappointed. The bigger platforms are catering to the masses and have gone puritanical in many cases, making it very difficult for filmmakers to reach their audiences, says Ed Seaman, COO of MVD Entertainment Group. MVD has a great deal of this type of content, and when it is live on major platforms, it performs really well. Maybe too well for some of the mainstream platforms. The Midnight Movie Society will also cater to more traditional horror fare as well, pulling from the thousands of film hours from in MVD's vast catalog. In addition, Rue Morgue will also be finding and curating fresh and unusual content for the service. Adriana Dober, director of programming, says as larger streaming platforms continue to crack down on content, there's an urgent need to create a space for boundary-pushing films unencumbered by strangling content restrictions. That I don't know why that word was so hard for me to say. <laughs> strangling. Strangling, especially given the content. As a lifelong horror fan, I'm proud and excited to be working with MVD Entertainment Group and genre champions Rumor Magazine to bring Midnight Movie Society to the masses. Rumor Magazine is a name that everyone can trust. It's actually a horror magazine I used to buy back in the day, and they're Canadian, so you know they're extra fucking weird. And nice. Yeah, and nice. Best of all, Midnight Movie Society is supplying all of our amazing listeners with an opportunity to get on board and try the service out for themselves. If you go to www midnightmoviesociety.com you can save 33% off your first three months of Midnight Movie Society by using the promo code SHAMELIST SHAMELIST? SHAMELIST! We have our own promo code! Yes, you heard me, you will save a whopping 33% on your first three months. That's just insanity to me. 
So once again, go to www.midnightmoviesociety.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-I-S-T, SHAMELESS. No spaces. No spaces, all one word, SHAMELESS. It's like you're yelling it at someone. Yell it at the promo code, but also make sure you type it in. Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and pick up your copies of Rudy Ray Moore's Dolomite films, just in time for the new Netflix movie Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. Also available is Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper, James Hong's The Vineyard, Pledge Night, Lust in the Dust, starring Divine, Putney Swope, The Amityville Cursed Collection, and much, much more. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Tammy and the T-Rex in glorious 4K Ultra High Definition, or Blu-ray, and The Angel Collection. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. So before we get talking, how are you doing? It's been a while since I've talked to you. Yeah, yes. Uh, oh, when was the last time? Um, probably at the film festival a couple of years ago. Probably. probably at, uh, yeah, either MFF or um, or Twisted Dreams. One of the two. One of the two. I, I it was more than likely uh, MFF. I, I know you've you've gone to Twisted Dreams. I just I don't remember the last time I've seen you there. So, um, you know. Uh, I just, that's, I've, I've noticed I've been like, I've, I've, it's, I've been missing not only movie theaters because I'm a movie person, but I've missed film festivals more than I thought I would. Cause I, I feel like I was getting kind of like burnt out on them, but now that they're not available, I'm truly missing them. Yeah. Same here. Uh, yeah, I haven't, uh, been to festivals in a couple of years and I was, you know, anticipating going to them this year because I hadn't gone for the past couple of years and I'm like, no, it's, it's time to go back, time to dive back in and, you know, be a part of that, uh. That, uh, that uh, atmosphere again. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, the community, exactly. And, um, yeah, so when this happened, you know, that threw a, a monkey wrench in things, to say the least. You know, that was disappointing. Because I was looking forward to going to um, Twisted Dreams. I was looking yeah. forward to going to MFF. You know, MFF and and uh, I was gonna actually going to try to go to the short film festival for the first time, too. I, I've never been. Really? I thought that would be, like, oh, right up your I've, alley. I've never been to that one. I've been to a lot of the other ones. I have, yeah, for some reason, I just have never been able to uh, uh, get to that one. The scheduling always got in the way for, uh-huh. for some reason. No, I get that. 
the yeah that, that had to be uh, mid March because I was actually uh, understudying the title character in this uh, show called Inspector Calls that Occasion Theater Company yeah uh, staging at um, the uh, Norville Commons at St Christopher's Church in Mequon and we opened up Friday March thirteenth Friday yep. the thirteenth. And people were like, are you sure that's a good day to open a show? And they were like, oh, yeah, it's fine because <laughs> the, the show has supernatural elements to it, uh, yeah. to say the least. And so, yeah, you know, it was it was kind of like a, a, a kismet sort of thing. Like, you know, you couldn't have opened it up on a better day. And sure enough, we got through the opening weekend. We were supposed to do two additional weekends uh, through the 29th, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the order for no more than 10 people came mm-hmm. down that Monday the 16th. And that's when we got... Uh, told that the uh, rest of the show's run was going to be indefinitely canceled. So, yeah. So it's, we got through opening weekend, and uh, that 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 was it. And, <laughs> and uh, it's the worst. Haven't been able to revisit it since. Oh my god! And it's like I, I I've just been hearing sto- like I've I've had people who had to cancel weddings and yeah, and it's just various things, and it's 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 hard to picture a time when things are gonna be cool again. You know, like. Mm-hmm. I was I said right at the top that I, I miss movie theaters and I, I think if you if you're a true cinephile it's it's a place that you just love to go yeah we can watch almost anything at home but like you gotta yeah. go to a the theater it demands your attention the movie's not gonna stop for you it's gonna do its own thing it's its own living breathing thing and I just right. I miss that and one thing I've noticed being at home I always used to have the mentality, well, it's the big, you know, the big, loud, boisterous films that I, I miss seeing in theaters. Those are actually the ones I don't have any problem with at home. I miss the small, quiet movies, seeing those on a big screen. Same here. Same here. The, the more intimate uh, films. Yes. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. The ones that at home might be harder to pay attention to because, you know, your cell phone's going off or there's things going on in the other room. You know, the big, the big loud ones are easy, but it's like the small, yeah. quiet. Like, I would, the film that we're going to discuss today, I would have loved to have seen in a theater. It'd be too. Yeah. I haven't seen it uh, three times. I'm like, wow, this would have been something to see on the big screen. I, you know, I, it was one of those things where it was a necessary, uh, um, gambit that you had to you know watch it at home uh mm-hmm. it being uh, on netflix and all but it would have also been intriguing and interesting had uh, a festival played it or had uh you know one of the fe- uh, one of the theaters here in town played it for a couple of weeks just so you could have had the opportunity to see it on the big screen yeah yeah or even like like i i feel like some of the subtlety would have been lost but i would have driven out to a drive-in or something to see it you know because drive-ins yeah. are still pretty safe if you know you stay in your car and everything and um, I just I just keep thinking it's like the first time they did that aspect ratio change on a big screen. Oh, yeah, oh, would have just been would have blown my mind. Yeah, I know people are. Yeah, they're gonna be geeking out over that. The ones who have seen it and the ones who haven't seen it, especially if they're you know into film geek uh, sort yeah. of uh, technical things. Yes, <laughs> it, it made me <laughs> it was, happy because interesting transition. It, it made me happy because I did that in my first film uh, from the Darkness Theater. I did uh, yep. an aspect ratio change like that. So, a kid, a yeah. young kid, is watching like an old school, like Sven Gulli style horror host on television. He's watching him on like a little four three tube television, and then yeah. I cut to the character, you know, um, and you know it's in four three, it's in black and white, and then like you, yeah, he finishes his show. You hear it's actually my voice. I do a cameo as the director. I call cut, and then oh. the aspect ratio comes out, and it goes from black and white to color. Okay. I was trying to like recreate that Wizard of Oz moment. And then Spike did the reverse. It went yeah. from widescreen 
the four by three in uh in uh saturated. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. desaturated. I should say desaturated color. And I, I I've not um, been able to find if he actually shot those those flashbacks on film or not because then that's a whole other technical level of cross dissolving to film and. Yeah. Yeah. It looked. I was under the impression that it was 16 millimeter. That's, that's what it looked like to me. That's the impression that I got, unless they did that in color grading and, Which it's, and uh, you know, fishing post. They could have, like, Ryan Johnson talks about, like, shooting knives. When I saw Knives Out for the first time, I was like, he shot this movie on film. It looked, it just had that quality to it. And it's not just the grain. It's the, you know, just the way, like, the almost soft edges on some of the things. There's just certain qualities about film. And I listened to a podcast with him. He's like, no, that entire film is, is digitally shot. There's one shot in the film where they rented a film camera for his birthday and they shot one take on film and he's not told anyone which wow. take it is. And his yeah. his DP has just a certain like um you know post effect where he can he he has found out the look of film and they shot it entirely digitally and made it look like film. And it's like you tricked me because I really yeah. believed it. Yeah, because somebody who really knows film, studies film, has made film, obviously, they're going to know the difference between digital and film. And if he was able to fool you, him and his editor, yeah. and uh, his DP, that's, yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. Funny enough, my wife has got a phenomenal eye for that sometimes. Sometimes we'll, we'll do a challenge if we're watching something. We'll try to guess whether or not it was on film, and we'll look <laughs> it up. And there's been a couple times that she's been right, and there's been a couple times I've been right, and it's 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 yeah. she for not having been a film person before met meeting me. She has a phenomenal eye for that thing, for that stuff, type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I have a buddy, uh, Joe. He he's the same way. Uh, I told him about Criterion about three four years ago. Now he's like the biggest Criterion <laughs> uh, fan on the planet. Like every time they got anything coming out, like he he even gets the uh, more obscure titles. Mm-hmm. Like he will seek them out. And it's just, it's it's a marvel to watch. I've, I've created a beast, basically. I said, oh, you know, Criterion, they've got, you know, um, uh, top of the line production quality and value yeah. and sound and picture and image and all this stuff. And he went and bought one and he's been hooked ever since. And now he's like half of his collection is Criterion. I... <laughs> and he's telling, me, he's telling me about stuff that I'm not even aware of when it comes to Criterion. <laughs> and anytime the sale comes around, he's like, you know, we got to get our Criterion on. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> My wife is like, when we, when we go do the Criterion sale, we'll go to Barnes and Nobles together and we'll both pick up one yeah. to two titles. And it's, it's just fun to, and I, you know, the, I, I, I like going for the titles that I know. But sometimes it's just fun for me just to read the back and just like, okay, this has got a cool cover and it's got an interesting description. Let's just go for it and just seeing what you discover. Because, uh, and that's the thing I think they do so well is you know they have so many well known titles mixed in with so many yeah. not so well known titles, and it's it's a cool way for people to discover things. And I almost forget that you know since I'm friends with so many film nerds, I forget that a lot of people don't know the Criterion Collection. So I'll just like casually bring them up, and people are like, wait, what are you talking about? Yeah, same here. Yeah, when I brought it up to him, he thought he was, you know, a real deal film fan, and he was, but he had never heard of Criterion. And then it just he just went down the Criterion rabbit hole after I told him about it, and he's been there ever since. And he's telling me things about Criterion I had no idea about. Um, so, like I said, I created a beast in that regard. But uh, as 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 uh, you and uh, Amanda uh, have uh, gone and done things and and uh, found films uh, like blind buy items, same mm-hmm. here, same here, uh, same with uh, Joe and his uh, wife Christine. We'll go to Criterion sales together often, uh, you know, when it happen a couple of times a year. And we'll just, uh, you know, get things that we want, things mm-hmm. that uh, we're you know, very much aware of. And then occasionally, uh, you know, we'll find one or two um, titles that will be like, yeah, let's let's give this a try when we read a description or something about it catches our eye. Like I did this with a, 
a movie that Bruce Beresford did uh, the last time I went to one of the sales, uh, Mr. Johnson. It was the first film he made after Driving Miss Daisy. And hmm. it's got Brosnan uh, and set in uh, the uh, set in South Africa during apartheid. Okay. And I thought well, you know, the fact that he followed up one ra- race relations movie with another one within a year, Driving Miss Daisy was 89, Mr. Johnson was 1990. That that kind of uh, gave me the uh, the green light, as it were, to mm-hmm. give it a shot. And I've seen it, and it's you know it's a beautiful movie, and uh, it's one of those films I had never heard of before. And I was very much around at that time as a teenager, but I was still around, but I had never heard of it, had yeah. no clue. I'm so glad that you know thirty thirty years later I was able to uh, discover it, and 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 um and I would recommend it to anybody. So and then, and sometimes then... stuff like that happens. And then you get to the point where I'm at, where I'm such a collector of so many of these boutique labels that I'm, I am shopping labels that even like film nerd friends of mine have never even heard of. Yeah. And yep. you know, it's like, um, like one that I've been a big champion for is if you like uh, exploitation and um, you know underground film, it's a company called Vinegar Syndrome that I've been a big uh, supporter of, and I just love that they'll put something out that maybe got a vhs release of like 200 copies and it was just made by people in chicago that no one's ever heard of and they'll they'll get the rights to it and they'll do they'll do a new 4k scan of it and they'll put it out and it's like oh shit here's a film that you know no one has heard of or if you have you've seen in terrible bootlegs that they're rescuing because that's the biggest thing it's you know there's there's so much film that's going to be lost in in time that i'm glad that there's even if you know they're not like super big sellers i'm glad there's companies out there just saving these things so that way there's a good copy of it somewhere yeah and you know thankfully you don't have to necessarily depend on the library of congress yeah to uh you know, put something into the film registry so that's that's great too when it comes to uh uh distribution outlets like like uh, the one you just mentioned and in, in places like magnet mm-hmm. and uh and uh elsewhere yeah they, they're, they're helping uh, preserve uh, movies that you know might not be considered classics, but they certainly have a following, a cult following, you know, to mm-hmm. say the least. Like the thing that worries me is like I'm also a, b- a big VHS collector, and there's a lot of there was a period of time in the VHS world where things were just being shot to video. They you yeah. know they wouldn't get theatrical release. They were usually shot sometimes even on VHS. Part of yeah. it, and then um, that is the only record of it is is that those tapes and I was talking to with a collector one time and he said, there's going to be a day coming next decade or so where the, those tapes won't play. And there's going to be just a mass loss of content. Yeah. Very similar to the early days of silent film where they weren't keeping any of it after it had its theatrical and they're just throwing it away or there was yeah. studio fires. And there's, you know, the fact that there's, there's silent films that no one's ever heard of, no one's ever seen because they're just gone. Mm-hmm. And that's or they're happen. you know, or they're in somebody's attic and nobody's aware of it. And occasionally they find stuff like that, and you know you see things that were being filmed, you know, eighty, ninety, a hundred years ago, and you would have thought that they would they would have been lost forever. So occasionally stuff like that is uh, is rescued, but uh, more often than not, like you said, it it goes it just kind of goes into the dustbin of history, unfortunately. And that's actually one thing that worries me about being such a digital culture that we're in currently is, you know, if someone delete, if someone, if someone, you know, a hard drive gets deleted, the Avengers could be gone, like, or something <laughs> crazy like that. Like, it could just be gone. Like, someone deletes that hard drive and it's gone. 
well, you know, with all the uh, with all the pirated copies, I don't think that's happening anytime that's, soon. That's also a good point. That's also a good point. Uh, it's yeah. just weird to think that like your masters could be gone. Like you know. Oh yeah, the masters. Yes, yeah. You, it could just be gone. Like uh, um, I know that happened. It wasn't until recently there was a movie I I have a fondness for from the eighties called The Legend of Billie Jean. Um, yes. I love that movie. I grew up watching that I, movie with Helen Slater yes, and Christian Slater. Yes, no relation. Yes. yes. <laughs> I absolutely love that movie. And for the longest time, you couldn't get I it. I totally love that movie. You couldn't get it for the longest time because the studio yeah. had said there was a fire and they have no they have no original copies left of it. Um, exactly. And then I want to say within the last five, ten years, someone found an original like negative just in their basement or something. And they're like, oh, shit. And then they put it back out on Blu-ray. But like you couldn't yeah, get that movie for the longest time. Yeah, yeah, it was on. Uh, it came out on VHS w- way back when. Yep. And uh, you know, uh, I rented it uh, at that point. Uh, you know, when I was uh, younger. And then, yeah, no DVD. And uh, like you said, it just came out about five, six years ago. And you better believe I was one of the first people to snap up one of those copies because I knew it was going to be a limited number, and that it would be when it was gone, it was going to be gone. Like, yeah, chance was going to be like when the uh, how they used to release films through Disney, where they would put out a limited number, and then when they were gone, they were gone for years. You know, you wouldn't find them unless you went on eBay or, uh, you know, you uh, happened to uh, cross it at, a, like, a secondhand store, like uh, CD Max or something. Yeah, and, like, I, I still, I, I like, I, I'm just ecstatic. I live in a world where I have a Blu-ray copy of The Legend of Billie yes. Jean. Yes, yeah, it is great. It is, yeah, yeah, I love that movie. I do too. I'm glad <laughs> I, I met someone else who's really into it as well. Like, I, and it's it's one of those movies that's hard to explain the appeal because it's like there's yeah. you watch it and there's like not much special about it, but it's just it's just a simple story done really well. And it's got it's got a really young Yeardley Smith in it. And it's weird seeing Lisa Simpson in in real life because she sounds exactly like that. And exactly, yeah. And then uh, the funny thing about that was she was playing a teenager, but she was already in her twenties by that point. <laughs> Yeah. yeah that was part for the course back then where you would have people in their uh you know early to late 20s playing teenagers that 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 was you know it was nothing unusual but it was uh it's still one of those films that when you mention it to people they they kind of glaze over like who was in that again mm-hmm. and then you mention it and you're like oh i think i kind of sort of saw that but i'm not really sure you know <laughs> and like it, for me it was like it used to come on hbo all the time when i was younger it was it used to be like it used to be that and smoking the bandit which are, is a very weird double feature but it's kind of great <laughs> for me it was always legend of billy jean and whitewater summer with uh, Sean Astin and um, I hadn't think I haven't thought of that movie in forever. Those were the two movies that it seemed like they always played them in tandem. It was like one would play and then the other one would play. Even if they didn't play back to back, they would normally play the same day either on HBO or Cinemax. Yeah, it was like if one played, the other one would invariably play that same day later. You know, even it's, if they didn't play back to back. And it's funny. There's so many movies I saw as a kid in that way. Like, like if yeah. they would just come on, I would just put them on no matter where they're at. And it's I can't remember a time the last time I, I where I felt like, oh, I can just put this movie on a couple wherever it's on at the day and just sit through it. Like, yeah, like if 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 um, yeah, I, I can't I can't think of an example right now. But if if a movie that I like now were just to come on, would I put it on every single day? I don't know. I don't know. But like when you're at a certain age, you're like, yeah, I'll watch tommy boy for the fourth time this week just because it's halfway over and i've seen the movie a hundred times there there's certain things that i probably would do that now even if i you know only could watch maybe like five or ten minutes of it i'm like you know what i've got five or ten minutes i'm gonna watch it 
and then I'll, you know, try to catch it again, uh, you know, when it comes on next time or I'll pop in the, the DVD or Blu-ray. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah, there, there are still cer- certain movies that even at this even at this point, I will still take time out of my day to watch, even if I'm insanely busy. I'm like, I got five minutes to watch this. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. podcast actually discusses movies be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements endings surprise twists unexpected cameos and all manner of spoilers if this doesn't appeal to you why listen to a movie podcast without further ado please enjoy our feature presentation the shameless picture show hello and welcome to another episode of the shameless picture show I am Michael Byers, and today I've got a very special guest, Mac Bates. My guest today is a man who dabbles in many different things. In his life, he's been a film critic, an actor, a contributor for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and Milwaukee Magazine, and is a defender of inclusion in the arts. He's always been a man I've loved to talk movies with and life with, and if I'm being completely honest, he gave me one of the best write-ups I've ever had in a publication. So I'm really happy to have you on, Mac. Is there anything I've missed uh, with your introduction? Well, I'm just, you know, still impressed with the fact that you said I gave you one of the best write-ups you've ever had in your life. So, you know, even if, even if you miss something, I'm going to just forgive it for that reason alone. <laughs> well, I reread, the, I reread that, that thing that you wrote about me and Valerie for uh, Do You Love Me? And it's like, you know, it was around, it's not that I get a lot of write-ups, but it was around that time that I had a three-film succession with all within a couple years of each other. So I, I, I was getting some write-ups around that time. And well, they were all good, but that, for some reason, that one, like when, while rereading it, it's like it just had a—I don't know—just had a quality to it that I, I, I really appreciated. And it's like, man, I've not read anything quite like this in a while. I, I feel um, like so many write-ups—they—they—they they, they kind of just there's no life to them. They're oh, just okay. very. Here's what happened. Here's what he said. Moving on. Like I don't know. There, there was some. There was some life to that write-up, and that's what I liked about, so much about it. Oh, you're talking about public access and lonely souls in Milwaukee. A yes. piece I did uh, film moviegoers when I was uh, blogging for Milwaukee Magazine. Uh, the the thing about that piece that stands out to me was you were so passionate about both of those projects for different reasons that it was it was a uh, it was really a joy to write it. And I thought, well, you know, this this kid because you were pretty young, you're still pretty young, but at the time you were even, you know even younger than you are now. Like this kid is so passionate about what he's doing and so passionate about these stories and these in uh you know the process that uh it, it rubbed off on me and I'm like yeah yeah you know uh you uh, it, it was almost like you were um it was almost like you kind of christened the that 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 story just you know with your enthusiasm so it rubbed off and and I'm glad that it showed up in print so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess I appreciate that my that my my idiosyncrasies are rubbing off on people. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, when we uh, had when we spoke, you know, for that piece, yeah, it was just it, the, yeah, the love and the appreciation and the commitment to what you were doing was so present until uh, you know it was it was a fairly easy piece to write in that regard because you gave me you gave me gold so I took that gold and ran with it so perfect well I'm glad and I'm glad to have you on my show so things have kind of come full circle where I get to uh, give you a chance to to speak your mind uh, especially because oh. when you had chosen 
Defy Bloods to, st- to discuss, you had said you you might have some personal relations to it uh, through your father, which we will discuss that here in a minute. But on today's episode, if I've not buried the lead enough, uh, Mac <laughs> and I wanted to keep the the topical vibe going that I had started two episodes two episodes ago when Jordan Davis and I discussed uh, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. Today we're going to be talking about the new Spike Lee joint, The Five Bloods. During the Vietnam War, a squad of black U.S. soldiers, known as the Bloods, have the mission to secure a downed CIA aircraft that's said to contain a cache of gold bars that's being paid by the U.S. to the Lahu people for their assistance in fighting against the Vietnamese. The Bloods leader, Stormin Norman, believes they should keep this gold and use it as reparations for the black liberation going on back home. The Bloods, who look up to Norman with great respect, all agree. However, things don't go quite as planned when a surprise firefight occurs and Norman dies and they lose sight of the gold. Years later, now old and retired, their surviving Bloods return to Vietnam to find the gold and to find Storm and Norman's body to bring him home. However, they learn they are no longer the same people they were the last time they visited this jungle, and they must deal with not only their very real dangers, but their own infighting. Spike Lee tackles everything from nostalgia, male friendship, PTSD, and race relations, all in this 154-minute runtime. Normally on this show, we don't discuss many new movies, but Defy Blood is Spike Lee's newest film, and it was released on Netflix June 12, 2020, to much critical acclaim. While many critics love the film and feel Lee is a shoe-in for Oscar gold, if they even happen this year, for how he effortlessly mixes poignant themes with action film escapism, some critics have panned the film for its tonal shifts. I, for one, would uh, would have loved to have seen this film theatrically, as it was planned, but sadly, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, its can premiere and theatrical runs were postponed. Or just all outright canceled, I don't really know what their plan is. But the film was directed by Spike Lee. The film was written by the screenwriting duo of Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, with rewrites being done by Spike Lee and his writing partner, Kevin Wilmot. The film also features a boisterous, almost Spielbergian score by Terrence Blanchard, plus six songs from Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On. The film stars Delroy Lindo, Jonathan Majors, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., and Chadwick Boseman as Storm and Norman. Black G.I., is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the soul brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. Welcome back to Vietnam. Look at that sound. You're the man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. We bury it. They don't, we come back and collect. I shall resign the presidency. Being back here, it is not easy. Now the time has come. Time is no place 
broken man. So what, you blaming yourself? You don't even know. No! been dying for this country from the very get now the time is there are things to real we give this goal to our people hold on in my line of work i have to be very careful and that means knowing exactly who i am in business with So when I, w- I knew I wanted you on the show, and for those who may not listen to every episode, one of the things that we, me and, me and Nick wanted to do, and unfortunately Nick couldn't be on this episode because his, his scheduling was wrong, but he is going to get his uh, thoughts in on the next episode. The next episode we're going to discuss Apocalypse Now, because I've actually never seen the film. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, for so, a treat. <laughs> yeah, so Nick's, gonna, Nick's watching this as we record. And so that way he can give his opinions next week. But we want it with the world, what it is currently. And with all the, this, um, uh, discussion about, uh, race relations in the world right now, we, me and Nick thought it would be kind of dumb of us not to try to bring it up, you know, not to speak on it. But at the same time, me and him are just two white guys. We didn't want to just be those, those faux woke white guys who are commenting on the black condition, never having lived it. So we thought if we're going to do this, we want to get voices in on the show that might have something more to add. Um, mm-hmm. So with Moonlight, I had my good friend Jordan Davis, who is a, 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 a black gay male. And he had chosen Moonlight because not, not only was it one of his favorite films, but he thought he had a lot to contribute with it. And then you actually had chosen The Five Bloods because not only is it Spike Lee's new film, and that's always an excite, exciting time, and it's a, a film that we all got to watch pretty quickly, uh, but you had mentioned, too, that you, you said your, your father had served in the Vietnam War? Yeah, yeah, he was uh, there during the uh, fall of Saigon, 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 rather. Yeah, and, um, you know, he's uh, shared numerous stories with me uh, over the years about his uh, time there. Saw some things that nobody should have to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a plane full of uh, uh, children that were born to um, um, uh, Southeast Asian women in uh, white or black GIs, and the plane crashed. And uh, everyone on uh, board was killed, including all the children that they were, I don't know where they were taking them, they were taking them somewhere. And uh, he had to go help with the, um, um, not so much rescue mission as the, uh, uh, Really, they were uh, retrieving the bodies, the retrieval mission. And, you know, it was just stuff like that, that, uh, you know, stories that you hear about people's time during the war being shot at, uh, being uh, sprayed with Agent Orange, uh, which is also touched upon in uh, the film. Uh, one of the characters is, uh, you know, talks about it at a certain point that he was also sprayed. And, yeah, it, 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 uh, a lot of it resonated with me because a lot of it was re- uh, representative of what my father has shared with me over the years about his experience over there. Would you say, and obviously I'm sure he didn't tell you everything. Cause if, if he was anything like my grandfather who served in world war two, he didn't like to talk about it. I don't know what your father was like. Yeah. Um, yeah. My dad, uh, he talks about it from time to time, but no, it isn't something that he, you know, talks about, uh, endlessly. No, no, it's, 
you know, like bits and pieces here and there, certainly when stuff is uh, reported on the news or something uh, comes up in casual conversation. Uh, uh, they seem to talk about it more so with their fellow uh, uh, vets, well, you know, when, they, when they're at the VA, that sort of thing. They, they tend to talk about it a little, a little bit more there. And I've heard things, you know, at the VA when I was there with him that I have not heard, uh, you know, when it was just us at home or, you know, out and about. If you don't mind me asking, is your father still alive? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, just celebrated his uh, birthday in June. Yeah. Did do you think this would be a movie he'd be interested? I'd be curious to see what he thought of this film if he if if you think it's something he'd watch. I think you know what I think so. I think it would be something he would uh, watch. Um, I know they touch on PTSD in the film, and uh, you know I think anybody who served in war suffers from that to a certain degree. I, yeah, you know, I don't I don't think you go to war and 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 not come back changed. I just you know. Uh, people in my family, uh, I've seen that firsthand. Uh, friends who've uh, fought in combat, I've seen that. And they, they, yeah, there's something that changes, that shifts. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some people uh, handle it better than others. Other people are, you know, they're so changed until you don't even recognize them anymore. But yeah, I think in, in, in regard to this movie, any any war film, I think, yeah, I think he'd be interested in seeing it. And plus, it's one of the first movies that I've uh, been a privy to, war films set in Vietnam that is told primarily from the uh, African-American perspective. Normally, African-American, um, uh, um, yeah, African-Americans in films uh, set during the Vietnam War are, are supporting players. They aren't yeah. typically the leads. They are typically the main focus of uh, conversation. There have been previous movies that have had some interesting characters uh, that, that were uh, black and happened to be American, like uh, Platoon, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, another movie that I just saw recently that I hadn't seen in years, Hamburger Hill, that had uh, like over half of that cast was uh, black, and that was probably the only other movie I can think of where uh, it had a, a pretty uh, a pretty even uh, representation of both black and white voices. Even though uh, that film was still anchored uh, primarily by a, a, a white actor, a young Dylan McDermott. I wish I could remember where I had read this, and I don't remember if this was a quote from Spike Lee or just someone's thoughts in, in an editorial. In the last couple of days, I've just been consuming a lot of... I've been going back and forth between interviews with Spike Lee and then going to like articles so I can... Uh, and I, Someone had commented, and it's, it's a perspective I've never viewed of, that, you know, obviously most, if not all, war films to one way or another are usually some sort of propaganda, um, mm. usually pro-American propaganda. And I wish I, I wish I could remember who said it, but so I read somewhere that uh, one person's opinion was that um, while there have definitely have been war films with black actors or black cast and before, they're usually used in a very propaganda way of um, it's the same way they're usually used in sports movies of we may be different, but we're here for the same cause type of thing, you know, almost <laughs> to like. It's almost like uh, one of those situations of, uh, you know, you have a, a racist uncle who's like, I can't be racist because I, I have black co-workers or something, you know, same. It's kind of like how, yeah. how it feels like it's used in a lot of war films. It's like, oh, these characters can't be racist. They're 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 putting their lives on the line to save a black guy or something like that. And that's and especially since we've seen so little um, uh black voices in these war films that's usually how it feels like they're being used and it's i had and it, it's something i never considered until someone pointed it out and you're like you know what that is true that's it's exactly like how uh-huh. it's being used 
Well, you know, uh, like a lot of uh, actors have said that, uh, you know, you pretty much have to uh, go where the parts are. Yeah. You have to you know, and try to, you know, bring as much <laughs> gravity or, or realism as you possibly can to a, a particular part. And uh, it, for the most part, that what you what you said is true. A lot of uh, a lot of actors of color in uh, war movies and, and sports films are used more so as uh, plot devices than actual full blood, you know, three dimensional characters. But uh, you can still find you can still find some pretty interesting uh, turns and, and, and dynamics mm-hmm. in, in some of those films, regardless of uh, the the way they they the uh, pigeonholed or, or or stereotyped. And I think that's really the, the the credit of a good actor. A good actor can take say something that there's not much going on on the page and bring life to it. Uh, yeah. So with Defy Bloods, there's a lot to dissect in this film. Was there anywhere <laughs> that you would like to begin? I guess actually, I I asked that, but um, I feel like the logical question would be, what did you think of the film? You've seen you've now seen it more times than I have. Yeah, I've seen it three times, and I'm still discovering things about it. That's that's how uh, that's how much there is to unpack. Yeah. You know, Spike Lee, even even in his uh, middling uh, uh, work. Still manages to pack quite, quite the, uh, quite the envelope. <laughs> yeah, his, his, his movies are stuffed to the gills, and this is uh, in no way uh, middling. I was just um, uh, referencing that uh, even, even his less interesting movies are typically better than some people's best work. And in this film, I, I, I find uh, that his uh, examination of uh, trauma is really, is really an examination of trauma. It's really an examination mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, of uh, racism, not only. Uh, here in America, but abroad, I, I found I found it rather absorbing in that regard, and I was really impressed with how he took these uh, five completely different people and 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 managed to find a a a synergy between them as 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 not only soldiers but black men and black men fighting a war that they probably should have been fighting in the first place mm-hmm. for a country that really didn't fully appreciate them. I, I, I loved how he managed to give them a sense of a uh, home, you know, so many miles away from their actual home and to give them a sense of family so far away from the actual individual families. So I was, I was really impressed by, uh, by that. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those movies that it makes you think, and you know, not a lot of movies make you think nowadays. So that that's great that uh, you watch this movie and it, it makes you think about uh, you know uh, stuff that has happened, things that could happen, parallels between mm-hmm. things that are happening now and things that happened then, how things have uh, changed, how a lot of things have remained the same. You know, there's been no progress. So yeah, it's in that regard, it's 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 great. And you know, just from a a visual storing, uh, visual storytelling point. Uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a pretty a pretty interesting uh, watch. You know, just visually, it's great. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like I I like films like this because it's a film that I didn't leave hundred percent confident in how I felt about it. I knew I left liking it, and I liked it a lot. And uh, I, I I keep going back and forth on things. Like I so said, there's things that he does in this film. That is probably some of the best I've seen it treated. But then, like, the mm-hmm. biggest thing that kind of stuck in my craw when I first saw it was that I didn't know how, like, at the end, it kind of became a different film. It it became, as they were joking in the beginning of the film, one of those Rambo movies. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's weird that he, he kind of had this this really interesting personal tale that then just became, you know, escapism. 
And I, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. But then I, what I think about it is like, you know what? I think that works because it's then makes into a film I want to revisit and revisit. But then I was like, well, does it take away from the first? And I, I keep going back and forth. And I've often been a firm believer that if there's a movie that has you flip-flopping so much that it's something special. Mm-hmm. The fact yeah, that I don't, I, I can't, I, I don't have a, an exact idea how I feel about it other than I know I really like it. And like I, I'm, I'm debating some of these filmmaking techniques. Ultimately, I think that makes me think that it's something that challenged me in a good way, because I think not enough filmmakers are willing to challenge their audience. Yeah, and that's the one thing that Spike has never had a problem with. He's he loves to challenge his, his audience. He uh, doesn't underestimate uh, what the audience is uh, willing to uh, go along with, mm-hmm. and that's one of the the hallmarks of somebody who, uh, for me anyway, I appreciate filmmakers who take chances. I appreciate filmmakers who uh, don't pander. I appreciate filmmakers who uh, take conventions and completely turn them upside down. And that's what he does here. He yeah. takes he takes those, you know, those 1980s like Chuck Norris, uh, Charles Bronson, uh, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, shoot 'em ups and he and he just completely upends it. Yeah. And what he does with it is so interesting and so just out out of this world in certain ways mm-hmm. that uh, you, you can't help but kind of go along with it, even though you're wondering like, why did why did he do it quite like that? Why did? And, but then you also realize that he's kind of setting you up for a lot of stuff that happens later on all in the movie. He 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 plants seeds along the way. Oh yeah, because they you know they comment on things and then some some of those things materialize in interesting ways. Like sometimes my, he just, he he does it a direct uh, uh you know a direct riff, and other times he he does a riff that is like skewed, but it's still very much a riff. Yeah, like my, one of my favorite examples of it, and for those listening who know the show, we're gonna spoil things. So if if you if you've not seen the movie yet, stop it and go watch it. But one of my favorite examples of that is when um, uh, hold on, I'm 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 blanking on character names at the sec. Uh, I think it's Melvin. Was that was that um um Isaiah Isaiah, Isaiah Whitlock Jr.'s character when yeah, he was like yeah. he's like I love you all, but I'll never take a grenade for you. And then he ends up exactly. doing it in the end. It was like oh shit, that had a payoff. Yeah. Yep. And like it wasn't yeah. just a funny line. It, you had to wait two hours for it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. pay it off though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I, I thought that was uh I uh I, I loved that little payoff moment. Um and it's it's funny. Spike Lee's a fascinating filmmaker because he is a filmmaker that has a very definite and distinct visual style, but it never feels like he uses it as a crutch. Like you see you can you can look at the five bloods and you can look at She Gotta Have It and see that is clearly the same filmmaker who made these two films, but it doesn't feel like he's still doing that type of film. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the the all the all the hallmarks and trademarks are there, but he's grown as a filmmaker, and he already had a really tight handle on visual storytelling. Yeah, and like you a can fr- see how yeah, they're from- the same filmmaker but different films. Yeah, the great thing about Spike in terms of visuals, uh, you know, because for him it's uh, very much visuals and music. Those are those two. Those are the two hallmarks of a Spike Lee joint. You got the visuals that are unlike anything you've ever seen in any other uh, film, and you have the music, which is really a, a, a uncredited character in a way. It's almost yeah. It's it's, it's, it's that character that is it's always there, even though you know uh, people might not necessarily realize that. But if you've seen uh, a number of his films, like I have, like you have, obviously, yeah, it. Uh, 
it, it's just it's it's definitely a hallmark of his. And uh, what's so great about his visual style is, like you've said, he's had it since day one. Yeah, he's, he's had this visual style from the from the very beginning, and he's been a filmmaker now for over forty years. Uh, his first movie came out in '86, so you're talking thirty-four years. And the yeah. fact that you could still look at a Spike Lee joint and know instinctively that there, like, there's certain there's certain shots, certain images of that that, that was his calling card, and uh, and that's great that he's been able to uh, uh, not only keep that going, but to have it become such a recognizable part of the cinematic landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, people know a Spike Lee joint when they see Spike Lee joint, even if they aren't aware that it's a Spike Lee joint. All they got to do is just look at it. Visually, you could just look at his movies and be like, oh, yeah, that's something Spike Lee did. Same thing with his commercials. You can look at his commercials and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Spike, he shot that. Yeah. And, like, one one mm-hmm. thing that I've always appreciated about him as a filmmaker is, one, his honesty but the process mm-hmm. he's always very honest. Yeah. He he. I, I've listened to, like, his master class and just interviews with him. And he's always very honest about being like, that wasn't the plan, but here's what we did. And the biggest example of that in the film is the fact that the actors are playing themselves in the flashbacks and they don't, yes. try to, they don't de-age them. They don't put makeup on. And he nope. says, I just felt along with Kevin Wilmot that the audience would believe that these guys, these four black Vietnam vets, we were seeing was in their mind as they were going back in time. That's one thing. Number two, we were shooting in the jungle and every day was over, every day was over 100 degrees. Prosthetics makeup would melt. And then, thirdly, if that's a word, (laughs) it would be nearly impossible to add another $100 million to the budget for the de-aging process. He had said that, you know, when you when you think back on events in your life, you usually picture yourself as you are not now, not as you were then. And then before I even read him talking about that, I started just thinking it's like to me, it feels like he's also commenting how much time has passed. Yeah. You know, you see this young man that they all look up to standing right next to them as they are now. You really get an idea of how young he was when he died. And, you know, the amazing thing about that is uh, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, all of the actors, uh, Delroy, Clark, Norman, Isaiah, they all played themselves back a- in Vietnam in, in the 1970s. They, you know, play their characters, uh, you know, throughout the entire film from that from that era through uh, present day. And um, Chadwick Boseman, uh, he plays their uh, their like ringleader in, in, in many ways in the film, uh, Storm and Norman. And uh, he, he's clearly in the film, it's supposed to be about 21, 22, somewhere in that range. And in actuality, Chadwick Boseman is in his 40s. But you couldn't tell looking at the no, movie. No, no, I would you never tell question that. You would have never thought that Chadwick, like, he's 40? Like, not only 40, 40 plus. So, <laughs> so yeah, it just go, kind of goes to that whole adage about black don't crack. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'm like, I'm, I'm turning 30 and I, I feel like I look significantly older than that. <laughs> And like, so, do you know much about the history of this film? Uh, no, I don't know a lot about it. Uh, um, I know that uh, it was a uh, uh, a property that Spike, uh, I guess, discovered or was brought to him, and he uh, did a re- and then wanted to direct. But no, I don't know a lot about the uh, its way, uh, you know, its road to uh, production. Now, so I looked it up, and I actually found a really interesting article from the Atlantic, which I will have to. Um, 
send to you and it was done by the the screenwriting duo of danny bilson and paul de mayo in about like 2013 i think is when they when they were working on a, uh when they finished their first draft of this script and for those people who don't know danny bilson and paul de mayo they wrote things like the rocketeer and um, the rocketeer. yeah <laughs> danny like, bilson his, his first yeah his first screenwriting credit was trancers from like 85 so like that's the type of stuff they were doing, and when they first finished this script, um, it was they had even said that it was far more of a you know uh, Rambo style action film through and through. Mm-hmm. And originally, Oliver Stone had interest in making the film, and Oliver Stone was attached to direct, and he had you know, eventually, and he had helped them develop the story and the. Um, uh treasure of sierra madre kind of subplot came from him because originally the plot was these people go these these soldiers and they originally were all white except for one black guy i think the i think uh um isaiah whitlock jr's character was still black in the original draft and they were going back to vietnam to find their old uh command leader and in in apocalypse now style he was still living there that was their original thing uh, oh. Oliver Stone added the the gold aspect of it to just kind of add another add another element, and then eventually he dropped out because the way that they tell it is he just simply said he doesn't want he he's made Vietnam films already he doesn't want to go back to the jungle, especially because no. he is a war veteran he, he fought in the Vietnam War, yeah, and um, he doesn't want to do it again. And in uh, the interview I was reading, it was between uh, 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 Danny Bilson, um. Spike and Kevin Wilmot, because Paul DeMeo is no longer with us. He died before the film was finished. Um, and the films are dedicated to him. Too. Yes, yes. And apparently, he was such a big Spike Lee fan that when they had the new, the the most recent draft before he died, where it had his name next to Spike Lee's, he was like sending pictures to his kids because he was so such a big fan. Um, oh, so that was the script as it was when, when Oliver Stone left and Spike Lee even asked Oliver Stone why he didn't want to do the film and he wouldn't even tell him. And, um, and Spike saw a lot in that film and decided to make him and Kevin Wilmot came in and made their changes and added everything that they did. And, um, and it sounds like Danny Bilson is a, thinks that the script is as best as it, it, it ever was, but it's interesting that it started off as one thing, you know, like a big, the big, gratuitous action film and then it was going to become the oliver stone film and then how spike lee took you know and uh, the bones of an oliver stone film and a action film and made it and you, i can see those elements i can see the oliver stone at what oliver stone would yeah. have liked in this film i can uh-huh. see what say like someone like stallone would have liked in this film yep well but, like chuck Norris. <laughs> yeah or, but then he made it into his own thing and I, I just thought that was really interesting because I, I didn't know the history of this. I just I didn't know if this was a project that Spike originally took out, took, like it was something that he had developed. And it's kind of interesting to, th- to hear that it had an entire life beforehand. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting to find out that Oliver Stone was attached to this at one point in time, because like you said, I could certainly see his stamp. Mm-hmm. In certain uh, certain aspects of this movie, particularly the uh, uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre subplot, I could certainly see how uh his his stamp was on that and a couple of other uh um instances in the film too particularly the relationship between uh otis and um and the woman who plays uh uh, 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 uh 
his love interest basically in the film. Yeah, his love interest from from during during his time in Vietnam. That I can certainly, yeah, I'm like yeah, that's that's very for me. I just I I was thinking that when I was watching the movie, I'm like, oh, that's something Oliver Stone might have done, you know, with that particular yeah. relationship. But the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Now that you mentioned it, I'm like, yeah, I can see how Stone had his hand in that too. Yeah, definitely. And like Stone is also another filmmaker. Like like or hate his movies, he's got a he's got his own visual sense. He no one. Few few people make films the way that Oliver Stone does. You know, I, I always yeah. like watching his films, even if I don't love his films. It's like there's something there. But one thing that Spike Lee had talked about is that the character of Paul was pretty much exactly the same in the original draft of the script, and they mm. thought, well, that that's interesting. And both uh, Spike Lee and Kevin Wilmot talked about growing up and how their his father told him that not, not not all black people think the same way, even though they're fighting for the same goals. That you do have people that will ha- you do. He said you will meet black people in your life who have a completely different perspective on the world. And oh, he yeah. thought it's like, well, how can we add drama amongst these characters? And that's where he came up with the Make America Great Again hat. He said he kept the character exactly as he was written in the first draft. Because he said even because be, this dra- that draft was written before Trump was a president, but they're like <laughs> he reads as a they like when he was reading it, you know, in contemporary times, he's like this character reads like a Trump supporter. Yeah, and you know that that's what is so fascinating about uh, that that character in particular. I mean, like there's a lot, there's a lot there, a lot to unpack there. Uh, he suffers from PTSD. He's uh, estranged from his son. Uh, he's got a, a secret that mm-hmm. uh, actually a series of secrets, but one big one in particular that that uh, pretty much drives, you know, what, what he's doing for the majority of the film. And the fact that he's a black man and a Trump supporter, that also is something that just comes completely out of left field. And, you know, his other his other brothers, they're like, they're like dude, what the hell? Like, seriously? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, why, why are you throwing your allegiance behind this guy? And then he explains it in a very matter-of-fact way. He's a very, very matter-of-fact guy. And, you know, uh, they they make peace with it. And it's an interesting way to touch on that subject without being uh, too preachy. Because, you know, you run the risk of being a little too preachy or a little too sanctimonious doing it. And they're like, you know what? It is what it is. We still love you. And, you know, we'll agree to disagree without being disagreeable to a, you know, to a degree. So uh, I, I was uh, that that was very interesting. And, you know, there were Lindo. He's just such an amazing actor anyway. And I think this is. He's worked with Spike quite a bit. Uh, I think their relationship goes all the way back to uh, Malcolm X, if I'm not mistaken. So they've they've had a a nearly 30 year working relationship, and uh, you know it's it's uh, he's amazing in the film, and he anchors the entire thing. And it's it's very much a a a walk in this guy's um, uh, down this guy's memory lane, and and it's he's just it's a beautifully rendered performance, very uh very uh, uh, grounded in uh, reality. And um, I, I can only hope that come into the year, you know, if, uh, if everything goes um, like, like it typically does, that he'll get some uh, traction with uh, critic groups and, and uh, award nominations because he's certainly deserving of it. It's, it's, a, it's a powerhouse, powerhouse performance. Yeah, without, to say the least. And, you know, the, his stage roots show because there's a long sequence towards the uh, uh, end of the film that uh, where it's just him in the jungle and it's mesmerizing, and you're literally going on this cathartic journey with this guy who is, you know, uh, just uh, reached the end of his tether. And it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's a, a beautiful, uh, tragic, uh, 
uh, profound thing to see. Spike called me, told me about the film, and said he wanted to send me the script. I read the script. My initial reaction to the Trumpian aspect of my character, Paul, was um, trepidation. I, I didn't want to do it. I called Spike and I let him know that, um, you know, I was having a problem coming to terms with that aspect of the character. And Spike thought about it for a few days, but then he texted me and he said he really needed Paul to be a Trumpite. I asked Spike to give me some more time with the script. He said, no problem. And I was able to rationalize in my head and empathize importantly with Paul's decision to cast that vote as he did in 2016. I see ghosts, y'all. I see ghosts. It was written in the script that Paul has a short fuse. So then my job became deconstructing what those descriptions meant. So Paul says in, in, in one of the scenes, when you've been fucked over as much as I have in life, you learn the signs of all those rap bastards out there. I took that literally as I was reading the script, meaning Paul is speaking about betrayals that he has suffered. And that comports with the experience of Vietnam vets that I spoke with. The slights, the betrayals, the loss, that's the genesis of Paul's emotional state. Nuts. You got a bond. We fought in an immoral war that wasn't ours. My perception, my quote unquote understanding of the average Trump supporter is Caucasian. I mean, a very small percentage of black people voted for this individual, but there's a very, very marked difference in terms of Paul having cast that vote, because I think for a lot of his base, there is the component of maintaining white supremacy. Clearly, that is not a component of why Paul cast that vote. You'd mentioned Delroy Lindo's uh, stage performance, or stage career really yes. shows off. And actually, I didn't know much about his, his past as an actor, but you'd mentioning that, like that's actually one of the things I always liked working with actors who had stage careers. I remember when I was in film school, you know, some, some, some people I worked with, some filmmakers I worked with didn't like working a stage actor because they thought sometimes were worried they could be too big. And you can sometimes run into that. But the thing I always really appreciate about working with stage actors is the fact that they can recite so much dialogue with no problems. Yeah, and, you don't have to keep, uh, you know, doing short takes because they can't yeah. memorize, you know, longer than a, longer than a butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> longer than a butterfly flaps his wings or something, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And actually, I remember um, um, Samuel L. Jackson one time said that, like, his issue with, with sometimes performance is that uh, uh, his best performances you don't normally even get to see because, you know, it's, it's an amalgamation of multiple performances put together in a film and you don't ever really get to see everything that he's done or he, that he's gotten to put into a performance because it's just snippets. It's just snippets put together to make a different performance. So when do you take your measure of the performance, of the work you did? Is it just what you do on that stage, that sound stage, or that set? Is that? I take the measure of what I did when the director says cut, and I look at the other actors, and we can look at each other and go, oh, that feeling came, that magical thing happened, and you're like, wow, we did that. Because you can't go to the movie and see it, because 
the movie's a director's medium. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of great shit that's not in that movie. But mm-hmm. because I worked the way I work in a consistency of progression through what's going on in the movie, it cuts together well so that it looks like a whole performance. Mm-hmm. I might think it's one or two dimensional, that there are some third dimensional things that aren't there. Mm-hmm. But people watching it will be like, whoa, that shit was amazing. You know, but I know that there's some shit that would have made you go like, ah! <laughs> That's not in the fucking movie. You know, uh, recently I heard a director, I forgot what his name was, he said that uh, it's for me, for him rather, it's uh, uh, preferable to work with an actor who's willing to take risks versus yeah. an actor who you have to kind of draw them out of their shell because mm-hmm. drawing them out of their shell you know, you don't know uh, how much effort that's going to take. Whereas yeah. somebody who starts out big, it's very, it's it's a lot easier to to help them. You know, come back down to earth. Yeah, versus, I totally agree. Versus you know, having somebody you know open up. Like yeah, so uh, I I thought that was a pretty uh a pretty interesting take on it. He was like, yeah, give me give me big over the top scenery chewing because <laughs> I could I could uh, I could you know uh, delineate that down to something real and 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 what I'm looking for versus somebody who I'm you know side of their shell is gonna it might take too much effort too it might take too much time but this person who's already at the gate hey you know i could i could you know draw them a little bit closer to the gate so you yeah know. Okay. i was just going over uh joe Lindo's uh credits list you've done you've done quite a bit of theater wow anything like noteworthy that i would potentially i would know of oh yeah he's done uh of mice and men Macbeth, okay. uh okay. a raisin much Ado About Nothing. Okay. Joe Turner's Coming Gone. Uh, Miss Evers Boys. Ju- Julius Caesar, Othello. He's done Othello twice. Uh, and the Exonerated. And that's just some of his credits. Master Harold and the Boys. Yeah, he's done a, he's done quite a bit. Wow. That Ocob. sounds like a lot. Yeah. Holy crap. About a Ty Cobb. Huh. Agamem- Agamemnon, where he played the title character Agamem- Agamemnon, and he played Othello in Othello twice. Huh. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Nominated for a Tony for uh, Joe Turner's Coming On. That's an August Wilson play. Uh, yeah. Oh, he played uh, Julius Caesar's uh, right hand man, Cassius, uh, Cassius. I've never really, and it's, it's not that I don't like the theater. I just, uh, it's, uh, I've never dedicated much time to studying it. So it's kind of, I also, it's interesting to hear your perspective on it, having, you know, be a person who, you said recently, you got the acting bug. Yeah. Yeah. Much to my surprise, uh, you know, was something that I did just really uh, uh, helping out a, a buddy. He uh, asked me to do a couple of uh, voiceover uh, parts for uh, some shows he's done. Uh, you know, in recent years, I did. Uh, I played a 1970s disc jockey in uh, American Expatriate disc jockey in 1970s London in a show called Funny Money five years ago at the uh, Waukesha Civic Theater. And then I played a German schoolyard bully and a pedophile father in uh, a performance of uh, Spring Awakening a couple of years ago uh, in 2018. And then last year, I made my onstage debut as a uh, small-town Oklahoma sheriff in August Osage County uh, in award-winning uh, production of that show. So, uh, yeah, it was it was you know wasn't anything that I was pursuing. I was asked to take part. And I said okay. In the first two uh, shows I did, Funny Money and Spring Awakening, those were primarily uh, you know voiceover. 
So I, it was a one and done deal. But August, Osage County in, involved me being on stage uh, for all, all of the performances, seven performances total and rehearsal and all that. So uh, I ended up getting the acting bug during that process. Like I said, much to my surprise, because I thought it was going to be a one and done deal. I thought, oh, y'all do it. I'll have fun and I'll be it. And uh, I've done uh, three shows since. So, <laughs> so there you have it. So one thing that I've been definitely noticing is that um, obviously Delroy Lindo's performance is getting a lot of love, which it should be because it's it's a fantastic performance. But mm-hmm. you're you're an actor. I think you're 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 doing a lot more acting now, and I'm sure you you notice little things in people's performances. What did you think about the rest of the cast? Um, like I said, Delroy, he anchored the film, uh, yeah. without question, but, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a dud in the bunch. Uh, the young man who played his, uh, son, Jonathan Majors was a, a great, mm-hmm. uh, great as, uh, this is, uh, is a son who has a very tumultuous relationship with David. Um, and I thought that, uh, what he brought to the film, uh, paired, uh, very, uh, you know, paired beautifully opposite what Delroy was, uh, doing. I thought, uh, they, they had a great, uh, rapport with each other in, um, it rang, you know, uh, quite true that that relationship. I thought that uh, Clark Peters as Otis uh, was uh, the MVP of of the cast because he had a he had a a, a pretty tricky uh, terrain to to uh, uh, haul during the during the course of the movie. And yeah, I just thought that um, again another stage actor. They, I think the, these are all stage actors. Now that I think about it, Delroy, uh, Lindo, Jonathan Majors, Clark Peters. Norm Lewis, Isaiah Woodlock Jr., Chadwick Boseman, all got their work on, all got their starts on the stage mm-hmm. in the shows because they they bring so much uh, they brought so much of their uh, craft to all, all of these characters that they were all very distinctive, and that's that's another uh, uh, thing that I love about the movie. Uh, each of these characters is very uh, in- intricately etched. They, like you aren't you are going to confuse any of them. Because they all have, you know, their own individual, you know, uh, uh, idiosync- idiosyncrasies, and um, I was just, I was impressed by the entire ensemble. It was it was a true ensemble, and uh, you know, I know a lot of people love to say that, oh, you know, this is a great ensemble in this film or that show, but uh, when when an ensemble really clicks, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's it's uh, it's it's on a it's um you know it's it's very it's noticeable. Yeah, and in this film, they all clicked, and uh, I, I loved, I loved, I really, but like I said, the the, the uh, Delroy Lindo's performance stands like head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, but uh, Jonathan Majors certainly leaves uh, quite the impression. Chadwick Boseman also leaves quite the impression as uh, Stormy Norman, the the guy who gets all of these men to come back to uh, Vietnam years after they've left, and uh, Norm Lewis, Clark Peters, and Isaiah Whitlock, all all great uh, in supporting uh, performances that could have been. Uh, left by the wayside, but they all make very distinct impressions. And I, again, that theater training that 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 certainly played a huge role in them uh, standing out in in their own individual ways as as they all have, and they do. And w- one performance. I, I, hope, I hope that makes sense. No, no, I, I think <laughs> it completely does. <laughs> one performance I really liked. I well, there's two of them. I uh, one because I don't know if I've ever seen a Vietnam film that's ever mention uh hanoi hannah yeah. or even shown her i thought that was a really interesting little perspective of the film you know where it's you know the the whole like it's it's almost like a grounding device to let us know where these events are happening but realistically her whole purpose in the war was to try to get cause contention 
yeah, between the white and black so Yeah, but she's there also to let us know where things are taking place. And it's also it's interesting to see how close she got to 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 causing these uprisings. Because mm-hmm. like at first then, she, she almost seems like a, like a good character, but then once you kind of think about it, it's like no, she she's trying to get them to to fight back. This is the voice of Vietnam, broadcasting from Hanoi, capital of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Black GI in Memphis, Tennessee. A white man assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King, who heroically opposed the cruel racial discrimination in the USA. Dr. King also opposed the US war in Vietnam. Black GI, your government sent 600,000 troops to crush the rebellion. Your sole sister and sole brothers are enraged in over 122 cities. They kill them. Why you fight against us? So far away from where you are needed. Black GI, the South Vietnamese people are resolute against these fascist acts, against Negroes who struggle for civil rights and freedom. Negroes are only 11% of the U.S. populations, but among troops here in Vietnam, you are 32%. Black GI, is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die or to be maimed for life without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the soul brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions, Big Red 1, 2nd Battalion, 136th Regiment. Have a good day, gentlemen. Be safe. Oh, yeah, she's definitely a propagandist. But, oh, 100%. Uh, but the way that uh, Spike uh, frames uh, her involvement in the movie, you could also see that there's some sensibilities there as well. Like, she... As much as she was trying to, you know, start, you know, stir the shit, mm-hmm. she was also, you know, trying to parlay information to the uh, the, the uh, uh, soldiers of color that yeah. they might not have been getting from their, uh, um, you know, from army radio and and so on and so forth from from you know their their country's uh, news uh, news organizations and news outlets. She was mm-hmm. basically, it was it was um, it was how can I put this? It was basically like her, you know, she was feeding the propaganda, obviously, but she was also trying to give them. A gateway into stuff that they were being uh, denied, uh, for lack of a better phrase, from from the American press uh, that that was available to them there during that time. Yeah, and then I also really liked. Uh, I have mixed feelings about how, uh, this subplot, but there's one scene where it all pays off. I loved mm-hmm. uh, Melanie Theory as Hedy Bouvier. She mm-hmm. just she brought this really interesting quality to her performance where she was incredibly understated and really in um for lack of a better term very french <laughs> in her performance but yes. and but like when i was watching the film I was like oh i don't know how i feel about this idea of like these uh these these uh 
people out there trying to clean up landmines until that one scene happens. You know the scene I'm talking about. Anyone who's seen the movie knows the scene I'm talking about, where the, the landmine scene. And what I love so much about that scene is it, it just it really shows how well Spike Lee knows how to mi- I think that is one of the best scenes of the film because his mixture of tone where it's both it's shocking it's also weirdly it's morbidly funny yes. but then it's also the most tense moment in the entire film yeah I I totally agree uh there's there's one other scene towards the end that is equally uh, tense but that that uh that that landmine scene yeah it, it's all sorts of crazy and the best possible way because mm-hmm. it, it, you feel like you're there and watching it when it's going on and you're like oh wow that's how intense that's how crazy it, it can get and uh he, he uh, they 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 uh they sh- they showcase the, showcase that that sort of uh, pandemonium quite well mm-hmm. uh so there's there's a couple things i wanted to talk about before we have to wrap up because we we do have to wrap up shortly um and I guess I, I, uh, they're, they're the, the, the two things that, that I want to discuss is the the treatment of the Vietnam, Vietnamese people in the film. And I wanted to talk, I had some questions I wanted another opinion on about the ending. Is there one okay. topic you'd like to go to for, go to first? Uh, oh, we'll go to uh, Vietnamese, yeah, how they're treated. So I, Ed, and when I first saw the film, I was kind of impressed by... At least at the time, what I thought about in terms of the treatment of the Vietnamese people, because I was like, oh, this is one of the few times I've seen in a movie where they are, um, where they are, can't talk, I can't think what I was going to say, where they, I felt like they're, they were real, they, they felt like people. They weren't, yeah, for a good portion a of the film, they weren't just, they, they weren't, um, just cannon fodder they eventually become that and i have thoughts about that but you know there's that scene in the past where storm and norman's group is sneaking up on a group of them and he they're having a conversation about like love letters being sent to their girlfriends back home and i was like Mm -hmm. oh that's interesting you're you're humanizing these these characters yeah. and i and i found myself really liking that and i also like what spike was doing with the character of paul where paul ha- I'm, I'm looking at my notes right now paul makes generalizations about the vietnamese people like things like uh well maybe they're the ones who killed norman and things like that and yet when pe- when generalizations are made upon him he hates it and i just kind of like saying oh, seeing yeah. this duality <laughs> uh wow. but i i had read an article before i came on with you um that kind of put things into perspective for me it's from uh i think it's the new york no it's from the washington post um wait no that wasn't okay i gotta find it for you but there's a an essay about um defy bloods that oh it's from the new york times about how it's written by a, a vietnamese film critic who who's seen pretty much every v- every vietnam war movie that you can and mm-hmm. he actually for what it seems like he he is generally favorable about the film he actually had some issues with the way that spike Lee, still being an american presented the vietnamese people in the same way that so many other vietnamese war films did while yes he did humanize them to an extent in the end you know it's they're they're still being used as cannon fodder and 
how he's a little saddened to see someone who is so politically minded to Spike fall into the same trappings. Mm-hmm. And it's something I hadn't thought about. And I just, I, I don't quite know how I feel about it. And I, I wanted to bring it up and see if you had any thoughts. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm wrestling with, uh, well, yeah, my thoughts about that as well. Um, I can, you know, based on what you're telling me that this guy says in this uh, piece, I can understand, you know, I can certainly sympathize with where, where he's coming from, but, uh, you know, it, 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 like we were mentioning earlier, the film pretty much becomes kind of an action set piece towards the end. You know, there's a, there's a huge, uh, huge action set piece uh, towards, the, towards the end of the film. And, you know, you had to have good, bi- good guys and bad guys. And, and in this case, you know, he went uh, the, the stereotypical route with who, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. Um, but, um, yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one to traverse because I'm not Vietnamese. I'm, mm. you know, not, uh, not uh, uh, from Southeast Asia, you know, by uh, uh, lineage or, or ancestry. So uh, it would be a different experience for them, obviously, than it would be for me or for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, but I can certainly I could I could sympathize because you know there certainly have been films about uh, uh, people of color, black people in particular, with that you know were uh, questionable <laughs> and and and, uh, and, uh, and at best uh, you know and how they were portrayed. But um, yeah, I can't say I had a problem with it necessarily. But you know when when you hear somebody of that uh, you know from that from that uh, that that side of the the, the aisle speak. You know, you got to take what they say seriously. Yeah, it's it's, it's and and you know he 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 would know better than me uh, about about you know how it is to be portrayed. Uh, you know his people being portrayed on screen, just yeah. like I would know better than him how it would be for my people to be portrayed on screen. So yeah, and it's and it, it was the same way when I saw it. It didn't bother me because yeah, that's what I that's what I've always seen in terms of these war like, films. But now mm-hmm. having seen read his perspective, it's something that I'm going to be thinking about the next time I watch it. And I was actually yeah. going to read a quote to you from his from his his essay and i'll send you the okay. the full link he says i feel almost churlish writing this given the urgency of black lives matter that we gestures to and given how hollywood and american general has mostly erased ignored or distorted the history of black people it's been a decades-long struggle for black talent in film to tell black stories with black actors as stars and with black writers directors and producers behind the scenes in this context defy bloods rightfully deserves its moment as it recounts in unique spikely fashion the experiences of some of the black soldiers who fought in disproportionate numbers during a war whose racism cuts both ways against black and brown and indigenous american soldiers and also against the vietnamese and cambodians laotians and the Hmong. i stand with black lives matter and against anti-black racism but still as i watched the obligatory scene of vietnamese soldiers getting shot and killed for the thousandth time and as i felt the same hurt I did in watching Platoon and Rambo and Full Metal Jacket, I thought, does it make any difference if politically conscious black men kill us? Defy Bloods remains a Vietnam, a Vietnam War movie about fighting an American dirty war again, except that it puts Ameri- it puts black men in the spotlight and it eliminates the worst of the anti-Asian yellow peril racism that character- characterizes the genre. What remains, however, is evidence that while Lee means well... He also does not know what to do with the Vietnamese, except resort to guilty liberal feelings about them. Mm. See, yeah, you know that's a take that, yeah, yeah, I would have got that. I would have picked up on that watching that movie. No, thought, you know, no, that wasn't. That would have been nothing. That would have even entered my mind watching the movie because, like so many people, I've been so desensitized to how 
uh, people of uh, Southeastern Asian descent have been depicted in films, particularly uh, Vietnam War films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then when you do see them playing nice uh, characters, even their stereotypes, even in that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's yeah. I would have never, never looked looked at it through that that lens. You know, unless I had read read what that uh read what you just read. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, and it's not to say that like. You know, we live in a world of duality and good and good intentions, and it's not to say that you know Lee's film is bad because of this portrayal. It's just something to yeah. to think about because there have just just as there's been really good war films from the white perspective, you know there um, you know there's always going to be something that we we should strive to be better at because he said mm. his ultimate fear was that you know while Spike Lee is a black American. He still is a, an American, and without yeah. realizing it, you still have some of this in the back of your mind. And unlike uh, some of uh, the other filmmakers he may have been speaking about, who made uh, World War, uh, you know, World War uh, Two films, uh, Vietnamese films, what what have you, I don't think Spike came to it with the with the mandate that he would turn them into nothing more than you know gun-toting uh bad guys yeah I, I just think you know just the convention called for it and uh and that's that's what he went along with and you know that's what was originally uh scripted and now he certainly put his own spin on things mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't think he came uh to that that uh the film or, or to those characterizations with any sort of malice or no, any sort no. of, uh, and, and like he, he there's a lot of things yeah. that i was i was commending him for that he did in terms of pers- uh, perspective and that like ultimately in the end the the big bad guy was a frenchman you know it's yeah. you know like so he was doing his own part and i think it's definitely a step in the right direction but it's i i think views like this are important to see that it's not perfect i would have been interested to see the original script and also the uh incarnations of the script up into the one that they uh finally shot mm-hmm. because i would imagine that there probably was not a frenchman involved until later in the process I, I, i'm fairly sure that the guy that they went to was, was more than likely vietnamese i would have i would imagine probably or Laotian, possibly. yeah yeah it probably would have been asian and yeah and somewhere along the line they said yeah let's toss this up some let's let's have the bad guy be you know somebody that you wouldn't expect mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah so one thing i wanted to talk about before we wrap up today is is some thoughts about the ending was there anything you wanted to talk about before we get to that point the ending um oh yeah, just or anything you want to talk about before we talk about the ending i should say oh yeah i just wanted to touch base a little bit more on uh delray lindo's uh, uh character being a, a maga a hat wearer yeah yeah uh, yeah there was a point that i uh had uh, neglected uh to uh, mention a little bit earlier uh that was an interesting choice in that um so many people including the uh, preemptive, presumptive, presumptive rather, uh, Democratic nominee, uh, Joe Biden, yeah. has recently stepped in it by saying that uh, uh, people of color, black people in particular, tend to not be as diverse in their, uh, their uh, political views and their, and, and their just views in general. And it was interesting that uh, he would say this, considering um, that that you know it's been proven over you know certainly the last few years that there's a, that yeah black people are not a monolith that you know they that we have all sorts of uh opinions and views and and takes on things and actually and that's that's the word monolith is the word that spike we used in the interview i just couldn't think of it so thank you for that oh oh well, you're welcome you're welcome yeah and i i just find it interesting that um it's even a point of uh discussion 
that uh, Del Orlando's character is a Trump supporter in the film. It's an interesting plot point, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's just interesting that uh, people have made a deal, a big deal about it because if he were a white character, like he was in the original script, it wouldn't even be, yeah. it, you know, it, it would get it would get traction, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be getting the same sort of traction mm-hmm. because it would be it would be almost expected. But a black man being a Trump supporter, you know, supporting uh, the Make America Great Again agenda, it's uh, it's it's controversial in 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 a completely different uh, uh, way. And um, you know, you look at people like uh, our former um, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. Yeah, he's a, a you know uh, unrepentant and full on Trump supporter, and he boy he got raked over the coals for that, and in and in numerous ways, rightfully so. But uh, I just I just find it interesting that uh, you know just just merely making a black man in a uh, a major motion picture Trump supporter it just started this this dialogue, and I, it's great. It's, it's absolutely great uh, that, I, uh, that that you know it's it's there that it happened. And then it's getting people to uh, really examine, you know, uh, why that's a problem or why that's a good thing, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. Yeah, and actually, I, I love it too because it's one thing I think Spike. One of the reasons why I think Spike Lee is such an interesting filmmaker. So when I was, I when I first started getting into film and filmmaking, I remember kind of a poignant moment for me where I was, I had an uncle who I'm not going to name any names but he he had some race, <laughs> he has some racist uh tendencies but he was also a big movie guy so he watched a lot of what came out and I remember him one time uh, saying some uh negative things about Spike Lee as a filmmaker because he said he said oh he only ever he, his movies are, are white hating or some stupid closed-minded shit like that and I was and I I was always defending uh, Spike Lee's work because it's like that's not at all the perception that he that he gives off if anything he's also very conscious about speaking about the infighting amongst the race himself like you know how you know something like in this film where otis melvin and the rest of them are against paul because he doesn't have the same perception you know i i've i've never viewed as spike lee as a as a hateful filmmaker he's uh, what i've always loved about him is that while he's not he's not shy to talk about uh, racial injustices in the world. He's also the first one to talk about racism within his own group. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, colorism, um, classism—you name it. Yeah, yeah. So it's like and I just I, I I remembered that that specific moment from when I was younger, and and I'm just I, not that I ever want to reach out to this uncle and ask him if he's seen this, but I was like, I'm curious what he thought about this movie. <laughs> But he probably wouldn't like it. He probably wouldn't like it anyways. <laughs> yeah, who's to say? Yeah, you know, crazy things have been known to happen. He might he might like it because of some of the things we've mentioned, or he might hate it for mm-hmm. things we haven't even touched base on. Yeah, and it's um, but I I think, well, I think this film would have worked uh without it. I think the like you said before, Delrin Del um. Lindo is definitely the the grounding pin of this film because I think without the character of Paul, I, I I just don't think this film would have been as interesting as it was because especially because I love that Paul's character was the closest to Storm and Norman yet he's the one who's the farthest from his viewpoints. You know they oh, yeah. they they paint Norman in almost this this superhero godlike uh, perspective and that was by design. Spike Lee said you know he's he's played. He's he's played uh, Jackie Robinson. He's played James Brown. He's played T'Challa. So this makes sense that he'd be the superhero to the, these guys. 
and Paul is the closest to him, yet th thinks nothing like him. And part of that just could be his PTSD, his guilt. I mean, we don't know what happened to him from the moment that he accidentally killed Norman to now, but mm -hmm. something affected him. Yeah, yeah, it's clearly, clearly. I think uh, when um, when Storm and Norman was alive, I think they were very much on the same page. But I think after the uh, accidental uh, friendly fire incident, I believe that that just broke him, and he he ran as far away from that mindset and that 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 set of principles as he could. Yeah, and it just affected everything. It affected his relationship with his uh, his uh, uh, the mother of his child. It affected the relationship with that child and mm -hmm. affected his relationship with his uh his uh, uh three surviving um uh you know uh soldier buddies just everything was colored by mm -hmm. that one incident and it's amazing how the trauma of something the guilt of something can just have uh reverberating effects on everything in somebody's life and i think that's what del Rey lindo's performance so brilliantly shows that you know he 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 was uh, traumatized by what happened and and it just uh, it reared his ugly head in so many different ways and mm -hmm. he was just never able to fully get back to himself to get back to himself uh, before that you know that that unfortunate um, uh, and friendly fire incident happened. Yeah, and actually, the the friendly fire incident is something that Spike Lee and his writing partner Kevin Wilmot added to the script. And actually, uh, oh. the original screenwriter um, in the interview I looked at, uh, Danny Billison, said like him and Paul, him and Paul DeMeo looked at that and like that's so simple and so genius. Why didn't we come up with that? <laughs> because it, it changes <laughs> everything. Yeah, the dynamic completely uh, shifts. Yeah, yeah. So it's like sometimes little things like that can be changed and you know, affect everything. So mm -hmm. I know we, you got to get going soon, but one thing I want to talk about that me and my wife are thinking about uh, when we watch this movie, and I want another opinion on it. Okay. So in the end of the film, we, we, uh, we, we had seen Melvin die. He blew, mm -hmm. he, he blew up. Um, we had seen Eddie die. Mm -hmm. In the end of the firefights, we see Otis laying there and, you know, just looking up at the sky, screaming, it's madness, it's madness. And he's got that red MAGA hat on him, which I think is kind of great, too, because it kind of looks like it's blood. It's the way it's positioned on him. Mm -hmm. um, and then afterwards, we see that, you know, the fallout of everything that had happened. We see that uh, Vin, their tour guide, he now has his own business. We see that uh, David... Um, you know, he kind of got a little bit of reconciliation with his with his son. We saw what Eddie did with his share. I'm wondering, and I want another opinion. I've I'm under the assumption that Otis died because you when I so. when I see his ending, where he goes back yeah. to Tien's apartment, and he he meets his daughter again. And she, you know, she, I just, I'm thinking about what she was saying. She was saying something along the lines with, I've missed you. I've been wanting to meet you. I love you. And all these things that seem strange to me from a person who's never, who's never met him. And then I also yeah. think about like what Tien was saying to her daughter, you know, that man is your father. And, you know, like the way, the way they spoke about him seemed very counterintuitive to the way that she spoke at the end of the film. And then we have one of those iconic Spike Lee double dolly shots of Otis and his daughter kind of floating through. And I'm just wondering, is this like his last 
thought before he dies because to me that moment of him kind of like floating through the scene feels like that's him accepting death yeah that is interesting oh you know what i was kind of going back and forth about you know what that all meant too because when you saw him lying there i thought he was dead Mm -hmm. it looked like they shot him you know in a position where it could have potentially been fatal and you know and i'm thinking take into account his age the fact that he's out in the middle of the jungle he's been struggling to get through anyways because he got rid of his medication yeah yeah you know he's in a great deal of pain he's been shot He's out in the middle of the jungle. It isn't like they can get him to uh, an emergency room in two or three minutes. You know, it isn't like Life for Life is coming to get him anytime soon. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with. I'm going to just leave it up to the individual viewer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to personally choose to think that he survived, that he got out, that he was able to beat his daughter. But I could also see how somebody would be like, no, this is all a dream. Uh, you know, th- th- these are his, not even a dream, just like a vision that he's having during his final moments before he uh, expires. I could I could totally understand why somebody would have that impression. But me, I think he I, I think that, you know, in, in that typical uh, uh, Hollywood 1980s, you know, we're going to, you know, going back to Cambodia or Vietnam or wherever and, and you know, uh, shoot everybody up and, and, and get what we got uh, coming to us. I think he made a recovery and, and went to go meet his daughter formally for the first time. That's, yeah. that's how, I, that's how, that's how I would like to, like to uh, imagine it happening, but I could totally, I could see how somebody might think that, no, this is something that he's thinking of in his final moments before he passes. Yeah. Now that now that I've mentioned it, now the next time you watch it, you're gonna be thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am. I am because I'm like I hadn't thought about it like that. But yeah, now that now that you mentioned it, yeah, I could totally see how you could have that interpretation because of the way the way it's framed, it really leaves it up to question. It isn't like you know uh, 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 tied up in a neat bow. But then Spike rarely ties his movies up in a neat bow. There's always room for uh, individual uh, takes on, on what what things mean, what they symbolize. You know, certain things yeah. are very much brought up, you know, like concluded. Like, you know what happened to uh, um, Eddie. You know what happened to Melvin. You know what happened to Paul. You know what happened to uh, DeRoche. Like, those are very clear-cut, like, you know, that this is what happened. And then certain other characters are like, yeah. You know, yeah. There, there's room for interpretation. And another reason I thought that as well is because, like, the only person we saw back home was David. Yeah, David was the only one. Yeah, so I'm in a classroom. Yeah. So I'm in a classroom, and it appeared that he was uh, teaching. Yeah, so, yeah. So that, I, yeah, I can see that. That's the way that I, I, I choose to, to think of it. And uh, but, You would have thought Otis would have gone back home by that point. Like, yeah, you know, because they, they do mention in dialogue, like uh, Paul mentions it, that Otis does have a family back home. Yeah, back home. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't just have, you know, this, this, uh, this relationship over there, he's also got a whole family waiting for him back home. Yeah, and you don't see them either. No, he's the only like we we see we see Melvin's family, we see his son and his wife. Mm-hmm. So yep, it's true. Something to think about, and like so that's Very that's what I, I I like when you know it's not a filmmaker's job to give us all the answers. So I like yeah. times like this where I don't know, and there's a couple different ways I can go about it, and that's that's the water cooler moment. That's what you're gonna sit at work and talk to people about, and be like, "Hey, I I watched the Five Bloods last night. Here's what I thought about the ending. Oh, I didn't think that at all." And 
Like, what did you think about Otis? What do you think? Yeah, what do you think happened to David? That's sort of thing. You go back and forth, and yeah. everybody's gonna have a different interpretation. Yeah, yeah, just like we do. We have a different interpretation. Exactly. But I can totally understand uh, where you're coming from on yours. I'm like, yeah, I could, I could totally see that. Yeah. So, um, I like I said, there's, there's probably definitely more that I could talk about. Um, but I know you're running low on time, so probably best that we just um, kind of wrap it up. And uh, you know, was there anything you wanted to speak about? Because I had um, like five minutes. I was thinking about like the music. I I really like uh, Terrence Blanchard's score. I've seen some people online criticize it, saying it didn't fit the tone of the film. But for me, like so the, I, I mentioned it in my big in my intro, the thing that it reminded me most of it reminded me of the score that you'd get in a Spielberg film. Yeah. It's almost got this like big sweltering, almost hopeful feeling to it. Like like the it reminded me of like the music that John Williams was doing for Spielberg back in the day. Majestic, almost uh, otherworldly in certain respects. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, we, we talked about it a little bit in our in our our, our like before we started talking about the film um, officially, but uh, Newton Thomas Siegel's cinematography and the way oh. that like those um, the aspect ratio changes. And I did look it up while we've been speaking, and apparently they actually did shoot the flashbacks in true sixteen millimeter. Oh, see, I was, I was thinking that. I didn't know. I was thinking they did, though. Because that's what that's the look that I, that I had. Mm-hmm. We wanted to show there's a difference between the past and present day. So we shot the past a Super 16. One of the avenues that we thought was really appropriate was to shoot it the way that you would have shot it if you were embedded with the Army in Vietnam in the 60s and the 70s. And we're using a reversal film that Kodak just made for us and also shooting it in a four by three aspect ratio, which was the, the sort of shape that televisions had before the, our contemporary times. The aspect ratio is something that Spike loves playing with and we're certainly doing that in this film where our characters begin their journey arriving in the urban part of Vietnam. And it's a widescreen 2.40 aspect ratio they set out on their their journey and as soon as they get to the jungle and they hit the jungle the film will open up we'll go to 185 meaning the top and the bottom of the film will get larger and that was really to sort of give a different feel to the jungle and to the journey that they make through the sort of more wild and dangerous parts of vietnam dangerous at least in terms of their modern journey so 
it's um and one thing i loved about that because i love that that spike lee is very much a how can we do this differently type of filmmaker um i loved that you know other filmmakers would have just put you know vietnam 1967 or whatever and you know just put a timestamp or whatever i just like that you don't need like he he just, he, he did instead does those those aspect ratio changes and it kind of gives you an idea of where the film is t- where we where we are now you know mm-hmm. it, like it's yeah. you know cuz uh so much of, so much uh vietnam footage that you'd see on the news back in the day was shot on grainy 16 millimeter and that 4:3 aspect ratio so it's just a great way to show the flashbacks and the passage of time the one that I've not quite been able to figure out yet is when they get to the jungle officially and the frame gets larger. Like, yeah. what that's supposed to represent. Yeah, uh, you know what? That actually reminded me kind of... <laughs> that kind of reminded me of uh, some of the music videos that they would make back in the uh, 90s where they would have this very elongated look mm-hmm. for whatever odd reason. Like, they, it, there was no rhyme or reason to it. <laughs> Yeah, they would just do it just because they could. And uh, I don't know if that was uh, a conscious choice. Like, let's just do it just because we can. Mm-hmm. Or if that was a very uh, um, a l- deliberate choice because of how he wanted it framed. I'm, I'm not quite sure. It would be interesting to uh, speak with Spike or speak with uh, Thomas or somebody uh, um, aligned with the production just to find out, you know, what went into that that decision-making process. Like, why did you choose that particular yeah. aspect when they go go back? Yeah, was that was that a conscious choice? Was that something that you you know came up with in uh, post production? You know, uh, when when was that uh, agreed upon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's it's. I find myself constantly fascinated by that, and I also like that the it's not doesn't feel like it's used as a gimmick at all. No, um, no. it it feels like it was something that the, he had been thinking about doing for a while. Um, yeah, I don't think he's. I don't think he films anything without going through a top to bottom with storyboards. I, I, I uh, imagine Spike is very much like uh, Ridley Scott in that regard. I think he sto- storyboards stuff top to bottom, mm-hmm. and like what you see on screen is what has been storyboarded to within an inch of its life before you know they even step foot on the location. I think that whole thing was storyboarded. Yeah, and um, yeah, I'm I'm I've always, I'm always looking forward to like what Spike Lee is going to do next, but. You know, you have the one-two punch of Black Klansman and now Defy Bloods, and it's yeah. it's because he had been kind of quiet for a couple of years. He'd been making films steadily, but uh, mm-hmm. he hadn't gotten that much attention. Yeah, and like be, yeah, he got you know Inside Man and Miracle of Saint Anna got some love, mm-hmm. yeah. got a lot of love. Miracle of Saint Anna was nominated for Oscars, and then like he made Red Hook Summer, Old Boy, which got attention for you know it's a remake. The Sweet Blood mm-hmm. of Jesus, which is the remake of Ganja and Hess, and then Chirac, and you know, Spike Lee fans or fans of film were talking about those movies, but it wasn't until Black Klansman that he really kind of had a, a resurfacing, and I'm really hoping yeah. that within the next couple of years, like, his work is really going to be looked at, it's his. It's always been looked at favorably, but I really mm-hmm. think that Spike Lee's going to go down as being one of the greatest filmmakers ever lived, and I just feel like it hasn't caught up to him yet. Yeah, with uh, Chirac, I think that was the film that really put people back on notice mm-hmm. about Spike. And then uh, Black Klansman just, you know, slam dunked it. They were like, oh, he's back. With Chirac, oh, he's definitely back. It'd be kind of like, you know, very, almost like on, um, uh, kind of like on pause. 
like he was working, but you know, it wasn't anything that people were being uh, blown away by necessarily. But then Chirac just came and people were like, oh, the spike of, you know, she's got to have it, do the right thing, Mo Better Blues, you know, Malcolm mm-hmm. X is back. And yeah. Black players would just put it over the top. And yeah. then, uh, then he followed that up with uh, Defy Bloods. And I think, uh, I think that his uh, second act is going to uh, keep progressing. I, I can't help but think that uh, he's going to be producing some of his, uh, his best work. Uh, I think some of his best work is yet to come. I know a lot of people say that Do the Right Thing is still his, uh, his seminal movie. And, and in many ways it is. And other people say Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Some people say it's uh, a 25th hour. It all really depends on who you uh, speak with. But I think, I think we've actually yet to see like, uh, you know, his masterpiece. Yeah, I do. I, th- I think his masterpiece is coming. It's just a matter of time. I, I completely agree. And I would love to see someone really kind of analyze his, I call him his in-between films. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, you know, you got Do the Right Thing, you got Mo Better Blues, and you got Malcolm X, but like, you know, I, I'd i like to hear people talk about Crooklyn or, or Clockers yes. or Get on the Bus and yes. kind of analyze these films the way that everyone has analyzed Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think we're at a point. Like, I don't know what else more there is to say about "Do the Right Thing," but yeah. some of these other films. And Brooklyn also, is just criminally underrated. That movie, why that wasn't a bigger hit, and why that isn't spoken of in in, in more glowing terms than that. I like people who've seen it tend tend to speak about it in glowing terms. I just wish it had been a bigger hit, and I wish that people uh, had uh, paid more attention to it when that film came out. It's it's such a good movie. It's mm-hmm. so good. Yeah, and again, you know, he plays around with the aspect ratio in that movie, especially when they go to uh, when they take her to uh, her aunt's house. Mm-hmm. And, but boy, yeah, uh, the performance in that, um, Alfred Woodard, Del Warrior Window again, mm-hmm. um, uh, the the little girl who played um, uh, Zelda Harris, who played uh, played the little girl in the movie, just uh, you know, just breathtaking work. You know, yeah. you, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. And Clockers is another underrated film of his. Um, I would say Mo Better Blues to a degree is underrated, but I know that was sandwiched in between Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, so I I could kind of understand why that one wasn't necessarily embraced uh, is is uh is uh, rapturously as those two films were, yep. but it's it's great in its own way. And 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 uh, Get on the Bus is another uh, movie that uh, uh, reminded people of what he's capable of. And the great thing about Spike is he's been consistent, yeah. even in his uh, even in his um, uh, lesser works. You know, there's still something that, uh, like the 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 less said about um, the less said about Girl Six, the better. But visually, in the music, mm-hmm. off the charts, off the charts. Like you could do, like just watch the movie just for the visuals and for the music, because Prince's uh, original song score uh, just criminally underrated. Crim- it should have been nominated for everything, and it wasn't, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, check it out anyway, just for that. Just you know, Prince's music and for the visuals. Why not? Yeah, and I, and I kind of love that Spike Lee, much like a, a lot of indie filmmakers, kind of has a one-for-them-one-for-me type thing with his filmography, but now he's getting to the point where his one-for-me is also becoming his one-for-them. Exactly, yeah. Like yeah, it's his, finally starting to up. <laughs> yeah, like, his, like Defy Bloods could have easily been like a one-for-me type film, but it was also a one-for-them, because like Net, his Netflix film was a big film. Um. And I I just love that his that he's starting to get that it, he's always had a lot of attention, but I think people are starting to realize how good he truly is. But you know, you said something earlier that struck me. It's it's his biggest budgeted movie, or one of his big biggest budgeted films. I would I would imagine that in um Inside Man, mm-hmm. probably roughly the same amount of money, uh, like forty five million dollars or so. It, it, at this point, you know, it, it makes no sense 
that he still has to struggle for his budgets. It really doesn't. It honestly, it's it's one of those things that it just is mind boggling that he still has to uh, uh, you know fight so hard to get uh, the budgets that he needs when other people literally sneeze. And they get you know fifty million dollars, and that's just you know to pay the actors. So yeah, it's like that's, yeah, that's my soap, that's my that's my uh, soapbox moment right there. And I, I'm gonna <laughs> say it too because like while I I enjoyed the film for the most part for what it was, mm-hmm. I just I shake my head at the Irishman just because like what did this do differently? Did it need to be four hours? The 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 uh, de aging effects were fucking wonky. And yet, yeah, like it, I, I love Spielberg. I not Spielberg. I love Scorsese, and I'll, I'll, oh, yeah. I'll pretty much see everything that he makes. Mm-hmm. But it's like he's one of those people that could just sneeze and he gets his budget. Oh yeah. Like, but yet, after Black Klansman, after being, after all those awards, he, you know, he still struggled to get the Five Bloods made, and he yeah. said studios didn't want it. Yeah, insanity. Is that like he should have been able to write his own ticket? Honestly, yeah. like after after Black Klansman, he uh, literally they'd be like, here's. Here's a, you know, we're going to assign you to a, a first look production deal, whatever you need. We got you. Uh, just bring in the properties and, you know, we'll yeah, greenlit left, right and center. Like you want to de- you want to produce. Great. You want to direct. Great. You want to write. Great. Here you go. Here's a pot of money. Do what you need to do. Yeah. So like, it's like, you know, that's not that's not a knock on Scorsese. I, you know, I, I love Scorsese, oh, yeah. but oh, yeah, because he's also one of those filmmakers yeah. who who's all over the place in terms of his filmography but it's like the fact that the Irishman got funded no problem, it seems like. Yeah. So not not only funded, but it got uh, you know, a huge uh uh addition to the budget they already had because uh post production ran so long and it was so intricate and so uh so expensive. They said, Oh yeah, here's another fifty, here's another sixty, you know, whatever you need to get it done. Yeah, and it's I think it's supposed to be getting like a criterion release or something. It's like Oh, I, I would, yeah. I would Defy Bloods love. needs to get something. Needs to get some love. Mm-hmm. Well, thankfully they got to do the right thing. They got to do the right thing. Um, bamboozled. On, uh, they got bamboozled. bamboozled came out. Yes, and um, I want to say one or two other ones, but those are the two I'm I'm uh, certain of. Do the right thing and uh, bamboozled. And I have I have a uh, do the right thing. I had to get bamboozled though. Still had to get that one. Yeah, and but, that's uh, another underrated uh, Spike Lee film. There you have it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on, Mac. I really do. Um, All right. This has Thank been a great conversation. And uh, yeah, once it, once the episode's done, I'll send you a link, and we'll be good to go. All right. Yeah. And again, thank you so much for inviting me uh, to take part. I appreciate it, and hopefully. Uh, you know, get a chance to do it again sometime. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Viers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.